You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Hopefully you are excited to continue the series looking at the gifts of the Spirit. We're at week five of ten, so about halfway through now. And uh, I just wanted to begin with, I think, a word of um, reassurance, a word of encouragement. Um, By God's providence this last week, I've had several discussions with people from this church who expressed um, this combination of emotions um, or thoughts or feelings that... um, that for them, a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about is quite new. They don't have a whole lot of experience of this kind of thing we've been talking about, spiritual gifts and living in the Spirit. For some of them, they, they have had experiences, but they've been quite negative and quite alarming and quite weird. But the prevailing kind of feeling has been this, this idea that, yes, I want to be open to these things. Yes, I can see that Scripture is, is revealing um, important things to me here, but I, I am also experiencing a level of, frankly, a level of anxiety when I think about what it might mean for me to open myself up to the Spirit working in me, um, what, what it might mean if God actually does give me some of these gifts we've been talking about, especially some of the more miraculous gifts, or I guess some of the more weird gifts, as, as that, that's kind of the way that it was communicated to me this past week. And, uh, and there's a level of anxiety there, and I just want to acknowledge that and tell you that I feel the same way um, and have always felt the same way when it comes to these kinds of things and, uh, and acknowledge that it's a very natural response to um, the opportunity for Discomfort or anxiety or insecurity, it's a natural thing to want to just retreat away from that potential threat. Particularly if you're here this morning and you are naturally more conservative like I am, you tend to withdraw from those things which are unfamiliar. Let's just stick to what we know. Let's stick to the tried and true. And I just want to encourage us this morning that... um, That the reason we can have confidence to open ourselves up, and I'm going to talk a lot this morning about opening ourselves up to the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. The reason we can have confidence to do that is not because the guy up front has done a good job of working through a passage. It's not even that maybe you've read a few books Maybe even some thick books with big words that have explained all these things thoroughly well to you. The ground of our confidence that we can step out of our comfort zone and open ourselves up to the ministry of the Spirit is because, and fundamentally because, we have a good Father and we can trust Him. For some of that, us, because of our experience with earthly fathers, that's a foreign concept and a scary one. But I just want to remind us this morning And hopefully you're reminded of this regularly when you come to church. God is a good father. He's a father who can be trusted. We can fully submit ourselves to him, fully be ourselves before him. And he'll always be good to us. 
He is good and does good. So I love that Jesus spoke directly to this point in, in, in a couple of ways. But in Luke 11, he says this, and you know this passage. Let me just remind you of it. He says, Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That needs to be our paradigm when we come into these things. When we're talking about receiving gifts from God, spiritual gifts, and opening ourselves up to him, making ourselves vulnerable before him, we need to know that this is the father who we're submitting to. He's a good father who gives good gifts and he is not going to give you one thing that's not for your good. Is that good news? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Jimmy read for us the passage this morning, and you'll know by now that we're working quite slowly and repetitively through these three chapters in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It's, as we've said, the most exhaustive um, treatment of this uh, topic of spiritual gifts in the Bible, and so this is why we're spending so much time here. We're dipping in and out of other passages throughout the Bible, of course, but here's where we're anchored in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his Strong, the strong words he has to say, both about the reality and veracity of spiritual gifts for the church and the necessity for those gifts to be exercised according to biblical principles. So that's our, our sort of compass as we work through, this, through these um, chapters. And you'll notice that in the passage that Jimmy just read, uh, Paul mentions the fact that though there are many different gifts, they're all given by the one Spirit, And uh, that's the spirit into whom we have been baptized. And so what I want to do this morning is, first of all, address the doctrine of the baptism of the spirit. For some of you, that's going to be something familiar. For others of you, you've never heard about this. And so I just want to give you um, a, a brief overview of this. And we need to do the theological work because it's important. And, um, and, and because I, I just acknowledge that, m- that this church is full of people from very different backgrounds. Uh, like There's like three of us who grew up in Anglican churches. The rest of you guys have come from Roman Catholic churches. You've come from Pentecostal churches. You've come from independent churches. You, like we're just, We've come from so many different backgrounds. And so I, I, I want to keep coming back to this this um, practice of referencing a few different ways of seeing these things and then telling where I think we land as a church. So when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want to give you three views. And these three views are all in the continuationist camp. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about cessationists who believe the, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased in the first century or by the, by the time the Bible was um, codified. Um, 
Then there are continuationists who believe all the gifts of the Spirit are still functioning today. We are, in this church, coming from the continuationist perspective. That doesn't mean you have to be one to be part of the church, but that's just where we're coming from. So in that camp of people who believe the gifts continue on today, I want to give you three kind of broad views and, um, and, and tell you where I think we land. So first of all, there's the classical Pentecostal view. If you've come to us from a big Pente church, like many of you have, this is where they're coming from. This will be on their statement of beliefs, probably, if you, if you take the time to read it. So the classical Pentecostal view. Here's the definition. Pentecostals believe in the doctrine of subsequence. That is, spirit baptism, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is always subsequent to, and therefore distinct from, Conversion. That just means it happens after you become a Christian. In this view, the initial evidence of having been baptized in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. If a believer has not spoken in tongues, they have not been baptized in the Spirit. Very clear about this. Um, the passage that they appeal to for this view is a passage from Acts chapter 8. I'll read that for you. It says, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because uh, he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So definitely... Uh, an instance there, report of subsequence. Became a Christian, baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, but not yet received the Spirit. Now, here's the thing about this. We need to, when we come to any passage in Scripture, and particularly the narrative sections, like in the book of Acts, we need to ask the question, is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? That is, does it just describe a situation that is self-contained Or is it prescriptive of what should happen for all Christians for all time? The Pentecostals are saying this is prescriptive. This is what your experience should be as a Christian. You become a Christian, you become baptized as a Christian, and then sometimes later you are baptized in the Spirit, and then you'll speak in tongues. The problem with building a whole doctrine, and this is one of the foundational doctrines for Pentecostal churches, the problem with building a whole doctrine on this passage is because it's the only passage in all of Scripture where something like this is described. And I think there's a very good reason why this happened in a once-off event context. If you look at the movement of the book of Acts... Jesus tells us exactly what's going to happen before he ascends. He says to his disciples, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on them in power. And they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, each of those statements is significant. Each of those places is a place of significance. The ends of the earth is significant because I can't think of a place that's more end of the earth than here this morning, right? So we've seen Jesus' great commission come to fruition in our experience. Jerusalem, Judea, so important because that is the seat of the 
the, the, the Jewish roots of our faith. And Samaria, also very important. This situation in Acts 8 is in Samaria. And you need to read this with the eyes of the first Christians. If they heard that, that people were becoming Christians in Samaria, they would have been and were shocked. Samaria, of all places, the Samaritans, the, the great enemies of the faith. Those Samaritans who came into the temple and defiled it. Those Samaritans who spit on the name of Yahweh. Those, those evil Samaritans, the very reason that Jesus used a Samaritan in his, in his um, subversive parable about the good Samaritan. And so I think what's going on here is that the, the delay in these Samaritans receiving the Spirit is purposed by God such that the, the giving of the Spirit and the evidence of having been converted comes only when the apostles have made it there to confirm. Confirm that this truly is God's action at work. This is a deliberate and once-off sovereign act of God to delay the giving of the Spirit until the apostles are there to give their stamp of approval. At this point, I think it's only Philip is there and he's not an apostle. He doesn't have that kind of authority. So if the apostles weren't there to give their stamp of approval to this event, then it would be very easy for the Jewish believers to say, that didn't really happen, that God's never going to work among the Samaritans. And then you have division in the very first stages of the, of the church. So I think, I think that's what's going on here. It's hard to be positive about it, but I think that's God's plan in delaying the giving of his spirit until the apostles are there to give it their stamp of approval. And then suddenly the, the, the church goes boom outward from Samaria, from Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now, even if you don't buy that historical view, looking at the historical and theological context, even then we should be wary about building foundational doctrines on one passage and particularly one passage of narrative where it's unclear whether this is descriptive or prescriptive. So I'll just give you that, that warning. The second view I want to look at is the contemporary charismatic view, okay? And this is... Uh, Similar but different. So in the contemporary charismatic view, they um, endorse that same two-stage doctrine of subsequence. So the baptism of the Spirit comes after the conversion of someone. However, many reject any conditions on which the Spirit baptism is contingent and and therefore do not believe all Spirit-baptized Christians necessarily speak in tongues. So they're saying, yeah, we believe in the two-stage thing, but we don't agree with having speaking in tongues as like the proof that it's happened. And I think they do well to reject that as a proof, that as if conversion is contingent on speaking in tongues. And I think they would appeal to uh, one of the passages we're going to look in in a couple of weeks when we look at the gift of tongues, and that's in 1 Corinthians 12. Where Paul says, verse 28, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. And then he says, are all apostles? We say, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all do miracles? Of course not. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in other tongues? Still, no. 
to all interpret no. So he's, he's asking these rhetorical questions, right? He's expecting us to say, well, of course not. And his point is, yeah, gifts are diverse. We shouldn't all be seeking the same gift. And so it would seem to be erroneous to then expect all Christians to exercise the one gift and for that gift to be the proof that they've been baptised in the Spirit. So I think they do right to step one step away from the uh, classical Pentecostal view. Then I want to I share with you this last view, the third wave view. Uh, the third wave thing is just noting historically that there seems to be in the modern era of the church these different waves or moves of the spirit going back the last couple of hundred years and this is the most recent one kind of in the 80s all right don't don't get hung up on that the, the this view identifies evangelicals so these are people who are like yep yeah, we we trust the bible the bible is the word of god the, the word is our authority it's our highest authority it's the supreme court of authority evangelicals believe the inspiration of the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures so Evangelicals who believe in and consistently practice the full range of the Spirit's gifts. So this is what we're talking about, reformed and charismatic. In this view, spirit baptism describes what happens when one becomes a Christian. So that's contrary to that subsequent view. Therefore, all Christians by definition have been baptised in the Spirit. And people who go with this view say, yeah, that's subsequent view. They're hanging their, their whole thing on one narrative text where it's unclear whether it's just descriptive or prescriptive and there's all this historical and theological context around it. We're appealing to many passages that, that tell us clearly that if you're a Christian, you have, you have the Spirit. So in Romans 8, 9, they'll say, remember what Paul said? He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That is, you are in the spirit. That's what baptized means. You, you, are, you have been submersed in the spirit. You are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It's very binary. Just like this view. Ephesians 1. Verse 13 to 14, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you, what? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. He says, when you become a Christian, when you believed, you were given the Spirit, and that, that, that giving of the Spirit is, is sealed, sealed by God himself. That's his stamp on you. You have been saved. If you don't have the Spirit, you haven't been saved. It's as, it's as simple as that, Paul says. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and there are others, he says, It is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment, as a guarantee. Now having said that, the baptism in the spirit happens when we're converted. It's the seal that's put on us that guarantees our inheritance. 
those of this view go on to say, however, there are also multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit whereby we are anointed or overwhelmed by the intimate presence of the Spirit. This is what the Bible calls the filling of the Spirit. Often those two things, baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit, are conflated, but I think they're distinct. Baptism happens at your conversion. Then there is an ongoing filling of the Spirit. Thus there is one baptism of the Spirit at conversion, but multiple fillings thereafter. Now my guess is that if you are of the uh, more reformed persuasion like I am, or the more theologically conservative persuasion like I am, then you would probably say yes and amen to the first part. Yeah, baptism of the Spirit happens when you're converted. We're not seeking some extra experience afterwards. But you might not be so on board with the second part, this idea that we are to seek ongoing feeling by the Spirit. And I'm, I want to say both are true. Yes, you've been sealed. Praise God, you have the Spirit within you and he can never be taken from you. And we are commanded to seek an ongoing filling of the Spirit. It's as if that Spirit can kind of leak from us. Another way to think about it is, yes, God, to put it, this is, we're slightly changing categories here, okay? So this is an analogy, but yes, it's true that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, always. Wherever you go, God is. And sometimes we experience the manifest presence of God. And those two things are different. So yes, we delight in the fact that we have the Spirit and yes, we are to seek an ongoing, and I love that, the uh, intimate presence of the Spirit. And, and, and in case you hadn't guessed, this is the view that, kind of, that we're aligning with. I think it's just the view that the Scripture gives us most clearly. So the question is, what is the filling of the Spirit? If this is something that we are meant to pursue as Christians, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, so you're like, I want to be obedient. If the Bible's telling me to be filled with the Spirit, then, then, then first of all, I need to know, what is, what is it? And this is, again, where it gets tricky, depending on where you've come from, because you might have come from a background where it kind of is implied that being filled with the Spirit is about being converted or about recommitting yourself in a kind of quasi-reconversion kind of way. Sometimes it's accompanied with a re-baptism, like a literal water thing. I want to be really clear, this is not about being converted again. Right, We've established you have the Spirit, you've been converted. This is not about conversion. This is about a desire in us to experience an authentication of God's presence and his love, his intimacy, his empowering presence in us. I love this quote, right? This is a quote that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells. If you, uh, 
again, I'm going to keep giving you um, further reading. And if you're in the I want to read bigger books with bigger words kind of thing, um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in, uh, oh, man, I've gone blank. Yeah, Joy Unspeakable. Thank you, James. That's why, that's why he's on staff. Joy Unspeakable is Martin Lloyd-Jones' book. And uh, on these things, on the... On the what well, he actually convert and conflates the two. He kind of refers to the filling of the Spirit as the baptism of the Spirit. So that's not super helpful. But he's this, he's this great, solid, you know, academic brain the size of a planet, preaches the Word, and is all about seeking, authenticating action from the Holy Spirit. So anyway, he says, he quotes another guy, Thomas Goodwin, um, quotes a story that he told in a sermon. This, we're going back, you know, a century. Um, but this is how Thomas Goodwin describes the feeling of the Spirit. He says, a man and his little child, and you need to read God and you, all right? Father and child. A man and his little child are walking down the road and they are walking hand in hand and the child knows that he is the child of his father and he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that and he is happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, cradles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him and then puts him down again and they go on walking together. That is it. The child knew before that his father loved him and he knew that he was his child. But oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I feel like bursting into tears when I read that. Who doesn't want that? We don't lack for assurance of God's love or of our state before him as his children, but the experience of intimacy. We all need that. I hope we all want that. That's the feeling of the Spirit. If that's what it is, the next question is how? How does it happen? How are we filled with the Spirit? There are many passages that talk about this. But the most explicit sort of commandment or imperative that we have is in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Where Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living or debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about what that might look like. It might mean singing hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. It might look like um, giving thanks in all circumstances. It looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But the commandment is be filled with the Spirit. And if you're attentive to the language there, or if you actually want to do what he says, then you run up against a problem immediately. Like, the question is, you might not put it this way, because you are not as big a nerd as I am, but the question is, how do you obey a passive verb, a passive imperative? Like, 
you know, be filled. If I say to you, um, phone your mum, it's easy. You pick up your phone, you phone your mum. But if I say to you, be phoned by your mum, you're like, well, how do I, what do I do? <laughs> this might shed a little bit of light on it. We're, we're bound by our language, aren't we? We're bound by the language that we speak. Some of you speak many languages. English is not a very helpful language. And some of you who speak English as a second language agree. All right, English, English is confusing. When I learned ancient Greek, it was tough, but it was, it was much easier, I think, than learning English because there are rules that are actually obeyed. All right, so... These are the, this is the table of rules, and then that, that I can figure out the language. English says these are the rules, and here are all the exceptions to those rules, and then the sub-exceptions. Uh, <laughs> confused by my own language. So, in the original language of the Bible, both Hebrew and Greek and many other languages actually around the world, it's much more simple to get what Paul is saying here because the word spirit is the same word as the word breath and the same word as the word wind in both Hebrew and Greek. Spirit, breath, wind. In English, we have three different words. We have breath, that's from Old English, meaning scent or aroma. We have um, spirit, which we get from Latin, which means spirit. And we have wind, which we get from German, which means Wind, right? So we've got these three different words in the original language in which this is written, there's just one. And so as soon as you understand that in Paul's mind he has this, this image of the wind, then it starts to become a little bit more clear. If being filled with the Spirit is about the being filled with the wind, then I can start to imagine what that might look like. I can start to imagine what actions I might take to participate with God in bringing this about. Give you an example. I nearly died in year seven. I went to this, this, this silver spoon school, Cary Grammar School, right? Like, there was, we, it, it was the early 90s and we had elevators in our school. It was ridiculous, right? Rich boy school. And everything was done for you and it was really easy until they sent you away on camp and then they made up for all of that good treatment by punishing you. And in hindsight, I think that's a great idea. They should do it more often. But at the time, it was, it was murder. They would just drop you in the wilderness for 10 days. There was no cabin. There was no kitchen. There was food drops of like imperishable products along the way and you just had to survive for t- you know, 10 days, two weeks. And the first one in year seven, I am literally three foot eight. I weigh about 20 kilos. I was just this t- tiny little hobbit. And I was, some of the guys in my class were shaving, all right? It was just so, it was so unfair. My best friend was from Sweden. We called him Dolph because he was just, you know, Dolph Lundgren. It was just, he was a bigger version of that guy from, from Rocky. All right, so, 
So I'm paired up with that guy and there's just no way I can keep up with a grown man, 13-year-old grown man. What we were charged with is, uh, on, and this happened on the last day, it was like the final, if, you ha- if you're not dead yet, this will kill you. We had to get in these sea kayaks at Lake Centrance somewhere and we had to paddle way out into the sea to where this catamaran was going to be anchored and then they would teach us how to sail that back to the camp and then we could go home and die. So the problem is kayaking from a beach out into the ocean means you're up against the waves and you're up against the wind and it was just the worst experience of my life. I ended up in tears at one point just because I, I just had no hope that we were going to be able to do what we've been told to do, even with Dolph Lundgren at the back. Just <laughs> The difference I experienced when I finally did make it to the catamaran, the difference between paddling with all of my flesh out into the sea versus the experience of getting onto a a sailboat and catching the wind and the waves back into the shore. That's the difference that some of us need to experience here this morning. Paul says, don't live according to the flesh, literally the muscles, but live according to the spirit, literally the wind. Some of us go through so much of our Christian life paddling like hell against the wind and the waves when God is inviting us to step aboard the sailboat. And the experience, like the exhilaration of being on a sailboat when it's at full mast, catching the wind, that's an, that's an amazing experience. It's an amazing experience and there is no doubt when you're having that experience, there is no doubt where the power is coming from. You cannot be coasting across the sea, being blown by a wind catching the sails at at full mast and think even for a second, I am making this happen. You can spend all the time you like sitting in a boat at a harbour with the sails unfurled, pretending that you're sailing at, at, at full mast and trying to contrive somehow the wind to do it, blowing against the sail with all of your lungs. You're not going anywhere. I'm saying being filled with the Spirit is having your sails unfurled and letting the wind blow against them. So how do you obey a passive verb? I think there is a cooperation going on here. We're supplying none of the power. That's all of God. That's the wind. But we are saying, Lord, I'm going to unfurl my sails. There is an an active element here that requires your will. This is what I keep getting knocked down by throughout the series. I keep getting blown away by the fact that Paul says, do not quench the spirit. That to me is incredible. 
that he would be attributing to us a power that could quench what God might otherwise do. I think that the power of unwillingness, whether driven by insecurity or fear or just respectability, to think that that has the power to quench God's spirit is terrifying to me. And God help us and God forgive me for when I've done that. Rather than that, I just I so, I so want to see a church full of people who are eager and willing to unfurl their sails and pray that the wind would blow. That God's Feeling of our feeling of his spirit, his communicating from his spirit to our spirit that we are children of God, that the intimacy that we experience, the 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 enlivening of our faith, the um, reassurance of his love, together with the empowerment that that brings to be able to live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, to be able to minister God's grace to those around us. To be able to make all of life all about Jesus. That all of that is possible when we are empowered, enlivened and filled with the wind of God. And I just, I would just love, I would love to see a church who is willing to unfurl their sails, come what may. Now the only thing I can think of The only thing I can think of by way of response to all of this is for us to pray, to pray and ask God to do that among us. But here's the thing. There's no passive prayer of that kind, right? There's no passive prayer that God would do that thing. There's either prayer or no prayer. And so here's what I want to give you, this very binary pathway forward. There's a pathway forward where you say, I'm going to put my sails up. I'm going to be like all those boats down at Williamstown right now. We were down there for Cherie's um, memorial service last Saturday. All the boats are docked. All the sails are furled, right? They're not going anywhere. And you can do that. You can be that Christian. Or you can say, yes, Lord, I want that experience of intimacy I want that empowering presence and therefore I'm going to unfill my sails as I pray and ask that you would fill me fill me afresh I love how Andrew Wilson describes this he says that that this desire to be filled is an attentive responsiveness to an external power Attentive, it requires something of you. It's not passive. Attentive, responsiveness. We need to be in touch, in tune with what the Spirit is doing. Attentive, responsiveness to an external power. We understand that we can't do this on our own. 
We can't contrive this. I could get the band up and get them to pray, play really loud and then I could start yelling over the top of it and we could dim the lights and it would do nothing. We need the wind to blow. I want us to pray. I want us to pray now. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. Paul says in Ephesians 5 passage that part of being filled with the Spirit is singing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs. Praising God from our hearts. We're going to do that. We're also going to have more people than usual here to pray with you, with all of you. God willing, who want to be filled with the Spirit. If you come down the front and say, I'd love to be filled with the Spirit, what you will encounter is something very simple. A simple unfurling of the sails. A simple acknowledgement that we want God to move. I love how um, John Piper describes this. This is what Paul does with his church in Ephesus, right? He, he says in Ephesians 3, uh, I thought I had it on the screen. Um, Piper basically says, Paul in, in Ephesians 3, he says that he wants his church, he prays for his church to be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on to pray for them in that manner. That's what we want to do. We want, to, we want to pray that you, that me, that us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. So why don't you stand now? We're going to sing together. Stand up. I'm going to pray for us as... We prepare ourselves to praise God together. And as we prepare ourselves, God willing, to pray for a feeling of His Spirit. Father, we do thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that it is sure and true. We thank You for the authority it has over us. And we gladly submit to that authority. And now we pray, Lord Jesus that you would be honoured as we stand and sing. We love you. We acknowledge you as our great God, our Lord, our Saviour, our Christ and our King. We thank you for all that you've done for us in your life, your death, your burial and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us to be our helper to be our encourager, to be our advocate. And I pray now, Lord, for a willingness and an openness that we would experience all the things that you have for us, every good gift. To those of us who have been digging our oars in and trying with all our might to live this Christian life, May we put those oars down and instead unfurl our sails. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.